0: Hello and welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America and right there in your pockets on the podcast feed. I'm one half of your host, Isle Osaski, checking in from the middle of the European studio. And I'm joined by David Clement. It's a Thanksgiving week for the Americans out there and uh, plenty of stuff happened in the world. David Hope you're settling in nice. And uh, I guess you're putting on your your country flag this week. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, most people are are super jazzed about Canada qualifying for the World Cup. Um, There was a sports commentator um, who had this really nice monologue. And he basically said, like, no longer do we need to fly the flags of our parents. We have something that we can cheer on for ourselves, which is really cool. Um, so hopefully they can, uh, the expectations are low, um, but hopefully they can put on a good, uh, a good show and, and make everybody proud.
0: All right, let's do it. I guess Dave will be rooting for Canada. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Canada was supposed to come on in music, but I guess it, <laughs> it takes a while. To, the, our producer Jeremy or Jamie, yeah,
1: Jamie, very slow <laughs> on the dial. Yeah, I was waiting uh, for like know, the the either the, the Canada news clip. Nothing. There's no news from Canada. Oh, here it um, goes. Here we goes. There we go. Canada, all right. <laughs> that was all needed. Uh, oh, okay. Well, well, well uh, I mean. I want to throw something out to you. Have you watched the FIFA documentary on Netflix?
0: So I don't. um, I have to say the fellows and uh, gals and non-binary peoples uh, over there at the Netflix, they are very good about lining things up exactly when people are going to be talking about this item. So I saw it on my uh, watch list or whatever. It popped up at at the right time, like when I opened the app but i did not watch it yet i think i know the premise absolutely corrupt uh, organization uh, but but tell me more tell the, me more and
1: basically the steps that were taken in order for qatar to win the world cup bid which i think most observers think they never should have gotten um, oh so it, it was pretty not crooked a great place. Is what
0: you're about to tell me
1: uh, it was crooked all the way up to Heads of government, where you have these the the executive committee, which are the national representatives for for soccer, who vote on where the World Cup should be. Uh, an example would be there's a meeting between uh, the Qataris and the Thai representative, the representative from Thailand. The Thai representative votes in favor of Qatar, and then out of nowhere, there's a gas deal between Thailand and Qatar um same thing with France the Emir meets with Sarkozy at the time Sarkozy goes to the French president of of France football and says you have to vote for Qatar and then two weeks later there's a bunch of deals where the Qataris have announced they're buying French planes and they're doing this and they're they bought Paris Saint Germain the football club and it's just like the the extent of uh not to include and that doesn't even include like the bribes and everything else that that is kind of on the books. Um, so it's just awful. And then, I mean, you just look at the the uh, the issues with the building. How many people died building these stadiums because the conditions are so poor? And yeah, just a terrible. Or the the FBI described it as a mafia-style organization. FIFA. It's a strange world being. out there.
0: Wow. Says so a lot coming from the FBI.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh so speaking of that, uh David. Uh well we speaking did have the, the month, US yeah. midterms. Yeah, speaking of that. You uh, did. did have the US midterms. It took us a while to get, you know, the actual results and you still had you, you probably still have some ballot counting and all this kind of stuff which I don't get in 2022, but what do I know? And we have mm-hmm. uh this new push that will come from uh from the House. And it's going to be Investigation Town, let me tell you. Uh, They're going to be opening up all kinds of investigations. There's going to be all types of things out there. Now, while I appreciate the zeal, I love the energy. I'm all in on holding uh, government, especially executive government, accountable. I think they're just kind of missing the mark here. And they're probably going to end up tying up plenty of resources and time on ridiculous Joe Biden investigations that mean, I mean, you've got a a gargantuan world that you could point to. I mean, look at anything related to COVID, look at any of these programs, look at any of the the CARES Act, any of these huge, you know, billion-dollar bailouts or loans that went out to people that a lot of the stuff was very fraudulent. Uh, There's plenty of stuff there, but they're going to focus on ridiculous things that... Well, exactly. It's not going to impact someone's life. No,
1: no, I mean, you would expect that a new Republican controlled house is going to do something aggressively in regards to the deficit or in regards to American energy, increasing production, decreasing costs domestically, exporting it abroad where you can, dealing with inflation. And instead, we just have some weird announcement about Hunter Biden's laptop. And it's like, really? Like, with everything that's facing the American people today, whether there's a story there or not, that has no impact on Joe and Nancy in Ohio. It makes no difference to their life by you doing that, uh, especially in th- so order- there,
0: there, yeah. There are five principal uh, investigations that have uh, essentially kind of come to the fore. Number one, Mm -hmm. the southern border. Uh, Okay, whatever that means. Number two, Afghanistan withdrawal. I mean, haven't we heard enough about this? Number three, I like. Origin of the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: Yeah, that's probably... This is a a Fauci
0: rematch. This is good.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rand Paul is just salivating right now. (laughs) I will never stop
2: standing up for big pharma and standing (laughs) against my
3: constituents.
0: Yeah, that's a clip from uh, one congressional debate. Uh, So yeah, the origins of COVID, um, which I'm seeing in more mainstream press, they're kind of coming around to it. Um, And then we have the Mm -hmm. DOJ. uh, So just a general looking at FBI, DOJ, Uh, apparently the project veritas targeting is a big deal and then this whole whatever was happening with this classified documents in trump's pool house or something i have no idea and then the other one is uh, hunter biden um the hunter biden thing i i don't think is an indictment of government i think it's an indictment of media this relates to the uh the hunter biden laptop um you know this story was censored all over social media and no one can write about it and people got suspended and New York Post was not able to post at all, like a month before the, the election. Uh, again, that's, that's more a fault in media uh, rather than government. But there it goes. There's at least one in there I really yeah, like. But,
1: uh, yeah, but and, and whether any of those are huge scandals waiting to be blown up or not, they don't have much of an impact on the lives of ordinary Americans. And so Republicans are really dropping the ball on the opportunity to do something.
0: They could have done something to where we're going to have an entire investigation into what a recession actually is. <laughs> Go back to defining <laughs> it. You know, let's let's spend like five hundred thousand dollars on an investigation, actually find out what it is. And, and then probably, you know, during a Republican admin, everything would be tanked. Um, <laughs> all right. So, David, uh, I've got I've got something I'd like to throw at you. Uh, OK, let's hear We've it. seen in recent years um, enterprising young reporters who are on the, the internet beat. Mm-hmm. So in the past, we've spoken about Taylor Lorenz, who's been a reporter at uh, Washington Post, New York Times, all this kind of stuff. There's a new fellow who's popping out of the woodwork. His name is Ben Collins. He oh. is the literally the disinformation reporter at NBC News. So he has been uh, the, the kind of go-to fellow on a lot of the... Uh, conspiracy world you know he was sort of the the authority he'd he'd be like hey look at all these ridiculous people you know sort of a a justin ling of the u.s if we we can say that got it and what we've seen in this is now he's put all of his fire into going after elon and twitter and uh basically just trying to you know say oh you know twitter is a garbage fire blah 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 it's the worst there should probably be investigations against elon there's antitrust So the the small theory that I had is like, look, you have traditional media outlets. You've got NBC News, New York Times, Washington Post. These guys are getting stomped. They're getting their their lunch eaten. So if you're an executive at this media company, you elevate anybody who's willing to question any of the the tech companies, any of the new social media firms, those who are anti-innovation, you know, FUD as much social media as possible, denigrate it. And then try to get a layup so that we can get some kind of government regulation, whether it be on speech, or, content, antitrust, you name it.
1: Or, or just it. straight payments, right? Because in, in other countries like Canada and Australia, these media outlets are, have successfully or, are, or have successfully lobbied government to make social media outlets pay traditional media outlets when their links get shared, which is so silly. We've talked about that before. We don't have to go into more detail on that. Boost. But yeah, looking for a, like boost. a there's clearly a vested interest in slamming or, um for a traditional news outlet. And it's because that's they're eating their lunch. Um and we saw that with the with the FTX collapse. There was and Elon Musk tweeted it. Uh, There was more analysis and coverage and and more thorough analysis and coverage on Twitter than there was anywhere in in the mainstream press. And it felt like the higher up you went in terms of outlet, like the New York Times, the worse the coverage got, where it was just super soft, um, super soft. And they're just more focused on, I mean, New York Times, barely anything on FTX, but they're going to go after Dave Portnoy again and gambling and insinuate that Dave Portnoy pumping gam- new legal pump, uh, gambling sites is going to create a bunch of degenerate gamblers and it's going to be a huge problem. It's like, what is going on here, folks? Come on. Like, what does it is, say uh, about
0: today's world that the best investigative journalism that we get on something like FTX comes from a Twitter account called Autism Capital? Compared to yeah. a billion dollar enterprise like the New York Times or Wall Street Journal.
1: It's, <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I, I, I like, as much as you're joking, that is like, that is news today. It's, it's the way in which it goes. Um, there are very few. Uh, I had a conversation with someone the other day about what is and what isn't a journalist. When I, I use a Canadian example, like Robert Pfeiffer, the Globe and Mail, is a journalist, he breaks stories holds government accountable. Um, a lot of this, whether it be Taylor Lorenz or others, just feels like opinion writing in the wrong part of the paper.
0: Well, and they also and, weaponize their power against private citizens and companies rather than governments, usually. Or, in the example of Taylor Lorenz, I have to, this is a throwback, David, um, but it's, a, it's almost a two-year anniversary of the uh, disinformation board governance oh, board yeah. if you remember that thing and <laughs> okay. that was a that was a hand in the glove trying to put the layup by by taylor lorenz who did an interview a very softball interview afterwards with uh, uh whoever was supposed to be the head nina janowitz or whatever her name was <laughs> mm-hmm. and everything is weaponized against private individuals i mean did you did you say a bad word on snapchat in your you know high school cheerleading squad group good luck
1: yeah yeah and uh, well. I mean, it becomes like, at what point do the cancelers become the canceled? I I, I think it, I forget who it was who said it, but it's all hall monitor journalism, right? It's like the, the Karen, Karenification of journalism where like they've decided that they're the moral arbiter and they have to hold people to account. I mean, we talked about this long time ago. It was the guy who created a, a big charity campaign to raise money for something and they were having some sports event and he was really appreciated in the community. And then some journalists sought it upon himself to dig up tweets from when the kid was like 14 or 13. He had said some awful things when he was a minor and then all of the deals, all the major companies pulled out, the whole thing collapsed. And then someone did the same thing to the journalist and found his old silly things that he had said when he was in high school and then he got fired. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, what a silly goose. What a silly goose. Um, yeah, hall monitors. Uh ah, much more on that. Uh, right now, we're going to go to an interview with uh, Emmanuel B. Faubire at the Montreal Economic Institute on healthcare competition. Stay tuned to Consumer Choice Radio. Let's get it out. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting here on Saga 960 AM and the Big Talker Network. David and I promised you an interview, and uh, there's a lot of different topics that we've tried to cover the last uh, few weeks, David. We've gone back and forth, all kinds of things up and down North America. But at least one topic that remains of interest to all of us, and I think uh, likely many of us who are uh, dealing with our parents or uh, friends or family, uh, yes, we're talking about healthcare. And we wanted to talk specifically about competition in healthcare, other models of healthcare, and perhaps how these models could help inform our own policymakers um, throughout Canada, throughout North America, about how it could be done better. So, who better uh, to bring in uh, than an economist from the Montreal Economic Institute? We're speaking to Emmanuel B. Faubert. Uh, she's here to give some perspective. So, Emmanuel, thank you so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio.
2: Thank you for ha- having me.
0: So I guess we'll set the groundwork. Um, you know, a lot of people were using a lot of the experiences of of COVID and the pandemic uh, as a sort of report card on the Canadian healthcare system. And uh this has, you know, led to a lot of of different debates and controversies. We've seen some things flare up in different provinces like Ontario and Quebec. Um if you could give us a sort of your own report card right now on uh, the the Canadian healthcare experience as it were, and then uh, maybe we can open the conversation about how we can improve upon that.
2: Yes, well, we did um, a poll about how the Canadians felt about the current state of uh, healthcare in Canada. And what we see is that one out of two Canadians is not satisfied with the state of healthcare right now. And the trend that there's two major trends that we see the first one is that it's going up through the years. So the, satis- the satisfaction is growing. As time passes. And also another trend is we see is that as people get older, so as people need more healthcare, we see that the level of satisfaction goes down. So the more you need healthcare, the less you're satisfied with it, because you see the problems with it.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, that obviously, that obviously sparks questions about change, a lot of the conversation in Canada whenever we talk about the healthcare system is binary right We don't want an American system is what we often hear. Um, but you've written um, and done some research in regards to some of the other models out there. What are they and why may they be worth uh, evaluating or replicating?
2: Mm-hmm. So one system we looked into was uh, the mixed system of in France and Sweden. Um, where they have a universal health healthcare system. So that's still public, that's still like what we have right now. But the difference is that uh, healthcare providers can be either public or independent. So your health insurance card is gonna work wherever you go, whether it's a private or public clinic, it's gonna work. So um, for in France, for example, 35% of hospitals are either nonprofit or independent. And that's something we could have here, because there's some uh, that reduces the administrative load and can lead to cost savings as well for the system overall.
1: Yeah, well, in just a quick follow-up. I... Oh, yeah, I was just going to say just a quick follow-up, because I think some of the naysayers on any type of mixed model would probably say, well, um, what, if, what if the... the private sector, the independent side is, is gouging um, the province whom they're billing. We end up spending more on health care. Do those systems, which you just described, spend more on a per capita basis than we currently do in Canada?
2: I don't have the numbers for that with me. But the fact, think about it, uh, to open clinics and hospitals, usually, for example, in the public system, it costs a lot of money, it takes a lot of time. So imagine here, instead you have an entrepreneur who can build this hospital quicker, faster, and then treat the, treat the patients, you know, as clients, this by streamlining the system. This is how there's a lot of cost savings by reducing the administrative cost and like the red tape that you see a lot in more in overall public systems.
0: Of course. And uh, David, I know that we've spoken about uh, direct primary care models um, that are right now much more popular uh, throughout the United States, where people have essentially a subscription to a doctor. Uh, They only take out uh, the sort of necessary catastrophic insurance and and pay cash for their ordinary procedures. Uh, But uh, as far as I understand, in different parts of Canada, that would be illegal. Uh, Particularly, uh, that's the dirty word that comes out, the private um, I think Emmanuel yeah. you've done a very good job in, in sort of delineating, you know, the, where there are other examples where you can have a mixed system. And um, that is how it is where I am currently in Austria, where a lot of stuff is done with cash. But if people want to use the uh, the e-card, you know, the, our version of the carte sole, then, hey, people are able to, to whip it out and use it wherever. But they also have the option mm-hmm. to go to private clinics, to get things done with private insurance. And they have that and there exists a kind of entrepreneurship and competition within the healthcare market. I would love to see something like that in Canada.
2: Definitely, because when there's competition, there's gonna be a battle of prices, right, between the providers. So there's usually gonna be a, uh, it's gonna be better for the uh, care recipients and overall, because there's no monopoly of care.
0: Yeah. And one thing I, I read here uh, from some of your studies is that apparently Quebec, the province of Quebec, spends about a billion dollars a week on health care. And I know in the context of the, uh, the latest provincial election, uh, this was sort of brought up in every which way. And, you know, it's the same to where uh, David mentioned before, you essentially have the, the bad version which is, you know, private American healthcare, care. Uh, and everyone was very scared of saying that. There was only perhaps one person on the stage um, who we've spoken about before who, who did talk about a little bit of competition. Uh, but, you know, what does it say about our political systems that they don't really entertain the ideas of a kind of mixed healthcare system? system? Why, why is it that we're afraid of entrepreneurship? Uh, we're not afraid of entrepreneurship when it comes to our, our phones or our brand new Tesla vehicle, uh, but when it comes to healthcare, uh, we somehow shy away at the idea.
2: Well, uh, the American system is seen a bit as scary because we see stories of people getting sick and then having crazy medical bills or just for uh, giving birth, uh, the bill can in the tens of thousands. And... People are scared that by including some private, it would be like the, as I say, the gateway drug, and then they we would end up in a completely private system like in the US. So that's I think that's what people are scared of. And uh, that's why they really don't want that because they they like being comfortable and knowing that if they're sick, you know, They don't have to go in depth for it. So that's why we believe that we need to have a balance between it. We need to have a balance of the universal healthcare, but also have the balance of public and independent providers so that people are better taken care of rather than having all these long, super long waiting lists and have the money follow the
1: patient. That's what we believe in. And another um, healthcare ask related topic, which was was huge, uh, a huge conversation during the pandemic, and I still think it will be for a while, is long term care. Um, There have been a lot of different uh, ideas floated around in Canada. I know the NDP had proposed a ban on on private care in uh, in the long term care space. You've written about Germany. Um, what's described as a cash-for-care model. How does that work in Germany?
2: Okay. So in Germany, you have an you have a insurance plan, the long-term care insurance plan that people pay throughout their lives. And whenever they get older and they do need long-term care, what happens is they have a choice. They can have institutional care, which would be similar to what we have here in CHSLD, in Quebec at least, or the other option would be to have a monthly payment that uh, are given to the care recipients so that they can spend on that long-term care. And that payment in cash is a lot more flexible. So it can be for home care equipment, to pay informal caregivers like family and friends, or whether it be to help prepare meals and stuff like that. So this idea here is that you give people choice. And you give them more flexibility, so people keep more of their autonomy.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I think uh, many of the listeners are probably tired of me uh, bringing up the comparisons, but I've, I've seen this in Austria as well. Uh, There's a cash payment to, uh, you know, my in-laws' parents. You know, they received a cash money, and with that, they're able to get a couple of Romanian uh, home takers. They came into the house, took care of them, got all the equipment and provided them that long-term care that they needed, you know, until they unfortunately passed. But, you know, that is just something that we, we don't really see that's built up in many of these models. And I, and I think, unfortunately, it's going to have to take this, this, um, it, it, we'll have to go back to the Paul Martin days of it. we're going to take some kind of left-leaning compassionate argument for the need to change this because now is the time. I don't know if it's going to take a crisis uh, Emmanuel to get there or perhaps it's just going to be some other other opportunity, but I don't really know if uh, many of the politicians are listening to innovators or entrepreneurs. It seems in this case they're just going to have to listen to to voters mm-hmm. at some point, which uh, makes me kind of cynical.
2: Well, if you look at the- Poll we did uh, early in the month, uh, we can see that 71% of Canadians think uh, that increasing healthcare spending has not made a difference into the state of our healthcare system. And even a third, one out of three Canadians thinks that even made it worse. So it shows that people are ready for change. Also, 64% of the people questioned for the survey we're in support of having a system like in France or Sweden, the mixed system I was talking about earlier. So this poll shows that people are ready for change and people want change. And uh, we're trying to help give them solutions of how to do it.
1: I mean, so if we've established that there's an appetite for this, there's probably gonna be a lag politically. But one of the big kind of looming questions or counters would be, how do those mixed healthcare systems perform in comparison to Canada in regards to outcomes? Do you have any data or information in terms of how they compare? Because I could see some arguing, well, it may be nice to have a mixed model, but if the outcomes are worse, Mm -hmm. then we want to avoid that. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, in France and in Sweden, you don't have waiting lines like we have here. That's one of the let's. That's one of the main differences. They don't have waiting lists. They, they don't have to wait weeks, months to see doctors. Before even cost savings, and I think that's the biggest difference we can see is the impact on the patients themselves. This is why we had like uh Shaoli like long ago, like people waiting years to get. Knee and hip replacements. It's 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 ridiculous. So that is the main thing we see. And also, um, for example, in the long term care uh, example of Germany, uh, we saw that the growth of uh, health of long term care spending by the government in Germany was relatively stable, despite the growing need of uh, long term care. So it keeps continue growing because population is aging, but it's growing at a a more stable rate. So we see there's no cost explosion that we would probably see because of the aging population. So that's the more uh, financial trends we see, but the savings are more long-term usually.
0: Yeah. And I'm looking at the number of current uh, health expenditure as percentage of GDP. Uh, it's all around ten or eleven percent for Canada, mm-hmm. France, and Germany. So uh, apparently, Canada does have the tools; mm-hmm. uh, they can get on the same level. Uh, so, uh, last question to you, Emmanuel: um, If there is a immediate change, you know, something that we can push for, uh, something that we can advocate for, whether it's just like one small piecemeal reform, uh, what is it that you think you'd like to see uh, in order to to change healthcare and the model that we have in Canada?
2: I would like to see uh, mixed practice being more common and accepted. Mixed practice, whether it's in the, for uh, nurses and doctors, that they are allowed to work in both private and public, and that uh, Canadians are allowed to go see a private clinic when they need help and still get reimbursed for it. That's, that's the main thing I would, see, I would like to see short-term because these are more regulation changes. While long-term care and the uh, private hospitals, these are more long-term changes. If these two first regulations can be changed short term, that would really help. I
0: love right. that. All right. We've been speaking with economist at the Montreal Economic Institute, Emmanuel B. Forbeye. Manuel, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Have a nice day.
1: And we are back on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, I am joined by Professor Sylvain Charbois from Dalhousie University, certified friend of the show. Uh, now a multiple repeat guest, um, Sylvain. Thank you very much for joining us again on Consumer Choice Radio.
3: My pleasure, David. It's been uh, it's been a busy fall for sure. Yeah, yes, I'm sure it's, yeah. it's been a busy fall for uh, for you as well.
1: Yes, absolutely. There's there's a lot going on. Um, one of the, the topic that I wanted to talk with you uh, about today is first food inflation. Um, what what do we see? What is the landscape on food inflation uh, and then the concept of greed inflation? So question number one, I suppose, would be um, where do you, how are Canadians uh, experiencing
3: food inflation? Uh, in one word, violently, uh, essentially because uh, all the last 11 months, It's been 11 months now that the food inflation rate has exceeded the general inflation rate. And when that happens, of course, people will notice food prices at the grocery store and they're noticing that those prices are increasing. Uh, And there's not there's not one safe place at the grocery store. Everything is more expensive. And so that's why it's 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 very difficult for a lot of people and based on our data, I would say that Canada is divided into two groups. Seventy five percent of Canadians are coping. They're they're figuring out ways to save uh, using points, coupons They're changing address. They're they're doing different things and they and they're coping and they're not necessarily affected by food inflation uh, in a severe matter. But there is that 25% that I think uh, are are seeing their quality of life being compromised by food inflation. And I'm talking... Skipping meals, buying mm-hmm. less food, uh, using credit cards uh, to pay groceries without knowing when you're going to pay your balance back, and those are the th- kinds of things that we're seeing more and more. And if you talk to food banks, they're getting more more traffic. Uh, I'm on the board of Second Harvest in Toronto. We're seeing more nu- higher numbers now. So it's really it's 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 a tough it's a it's a really tough thing uh, to see right now for a quarter of our population.
1: And and I guess that poses a second question in terms of the source. And I know it's probably not an easy answer, but what are some of the sources of food inflation? Because obviously, this is it's probably not unprecedented, but it is um, not a common occurrence to see food prices inflate like this.
3: No, well, you want food inflation. It's just, I mean, the sweet spot for food inflation is what one point five to two point five percent, and we've exceeded that for a very long time now. I can't remember last time I saw food inflation being below two point five percent. It was probably early twenty twenty one, and so um, and 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 frankly, it, it is a, a global phenomena. The one thing that most Canadians. Uh, may not know is the fact that when you look at the G7 right now, Canada has the third lowest food inflation rate amongst G7 countries. And if you add superpowers like uh, Holland and and Denmark, those two countries are agri-food superpowers. They do produce a lot of food. Like the Netherlands, 61% of its land mass is dedicated to to agriculture Mm -hmm. and farming, I mean, those countries are amazing, still, their inflation rate is actually above ours, mm-hmm. so we're still number three. So, in the grand scheme of things, we're not doing too badly. But as I mentioned earlier, uh, Canadian families don't care what's going on in Germany or the US or UK, they're still paying more <laughs> for groceries, yeah,
1: yeah, and yeah. they're
3: and they're looking. I mean, they're looking for reasons, domestic reasons, uh, for this phenomena. But in reality, uh, it's a sequence of different factors like climate change, Ukraine, energy costs, um, COVID-19, supply chain fatigue. I mean, there's there's a series of different factors that have impacted the entire planet. So, uh, But you can feel that right now, Canadians are looking for a scapegoat. Domestically, mm-hmm. they're looking mm-hmm. for uh, for one responsible party, and that's why we're hearing more about greedflation and just inflation and all of these <laughs> things yep. that are being said. And and frankly, I think most of these uh, terms are are a motiva- motivated by uneducated narratives, to be honest.
1: Yeah, it seems like on one side uh, the finger is pointed at um, at Justin Trudeau and and the Bank of Canada and m- all of that. We won't get into the nuances of monetary policy here. Uh, and then on the other, Canada, I
3: mean, you 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 also have you have to think about central banks in general because yes. the Bank of Canada actually was slightly ahead of the Fed uh, last fall. Mm-hmm. I remember this time last year we were preparing Canada's food price report for 2022 our forecast and I actually we were we were seeing things that nobody nobody was talking about like supply chain problems and and we could see prices rise which is why we came in with a 7% for 2022 and everyone thought we were alarmist but I do remember last fall the bank of canada was the first one to acknowledge that supply chain problems could actually push prices higher and that's exactly what happened while the fed was still talking about a transitory sort of mm-hmm. scheme. Uh, yeah. And I'm sure you remember that quite well, David. And everything changed early 2022.
1: There were a lot of, a lot of uh, folks in the U.S. punditry system who were parroting the transitory line who now have egg on their face because obviously that's not the case. On the other side, you have uh, progressives. I mean, I've seen it in the U.S. with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, but also in Canada with... Jagmeet Singh, they're not pointing the finger at Trudeau. They're pointing the finger at grocery stores and what they deem as excessive profits. Um, What merit? How is there merit to that claim? What are the numbers?
3: Uh, yes. In the U.S., I mean, it's, it, food inflation is being politicized both sides of the border, which is why Kroger is having a really hard time buying Albertsons. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Washington is all over that one. It's only 15% of the market share. 15%. We have two above that in Canada, mm-hmm. Loblaw and, and, and Empire. Uh, when you look at – so we've actually released three reports on inflation now. We call it inflation because, yeah. well, everyone talks about – you know, how do you measure greed? Essentially, that's what we've been trying to do. So the first report was in the summer, looking at final statements between 2017 to 2021, didn't see a darn thing. We actually look at processing as well as CPG companies, processors like McCain, Maple Leaf, couldn't find anything, any evidence of, of abuse. Um and then, of course, we went to the U.S. Compared the U.S. Uh, U.S.-based grocers with Canada's. So that was early September. Nothing margins have remained constant, two to four percent. So, but for the third one, the third installment, which actually was released last week, we actually looked at twenty twenty two, and that's when we saw that there's a bit of a different story in twenty twenty two. So, we looked at six years of data look at record highs, basically set benchmarks for each grocer because all of these companies are different. Yeah, Metro yeah. Metro is, is, is underperforming its historical high, Empire as well. But Loblaw is a bit of an outlier. Uh, Loblaw actually is making more than its historical high. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, it's about a million dollars a day over the first two quarters. So six months. So it's $180 It had to generate $25 billion worth of business (laughs) to generate that extra. So in a grand scheme of things, it's still not too much. But it begs the question, when you look at the statement of – when you look at revenues with Loblaws, you can't really know for sure if food sales are pushing profits higher because everything is put into one column. Uh, yeah,
1: you don't know if its efficiencies in like in theory. Um, although I'm not the where there's inefficiencies in the, the the grocery system, I would have no idea. My exposure to the grocery system is just going to buy groceries. Um, but you would you you would assume that it, in theory could be possible that uh, a combination of increased prices plus some efficiencies somewhere could be. It's not just. It's not just
3: it's just right now. I actually do believe that there's there is enough evidence which mm-hmm. would suggest that blah blahs is making more money selling lipsticks and perfume and precision drugs and t-shirts than selling food. Selling food I think margins have remained the same, but there's no there's no data to support it. So if when you hear um uh, when you hear uh people like uh, NDP leader Jackman Singh saying that 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 grocers are gouging canadians with food sales there's there's no evidence of that there's Mm -hmm. none and yeah and so, so that's why we need to be a little bit careful here
1: you you yeah you raise a very good point i hadn't thought about it until now but not all grocery stores are the same if i go to superstore i can buy clothes i can buy cosmetics i can buy anything if i go to no frills or 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 longos or metro um not necessarily the case um So what we're suggesting
3: for grocers and the competition bureau is perhaps to entice uh, grocers to report separately food sales from everything else because the morality – I'm sure you can appreciate, David. The morality of selling food is – the moral aspect of selling food is very different than selling lipstick. And so that's why –
1: Yeah, I I think the political response to – Loblaw is making an extra million dollars a day because Joe Fresh had a record quarter. People would be like, oh, okay, well, people like their clothes. Good for them. But if it's like they inflated the price of bread, bananas, insert any item, um, then there would be some outrage and probably some, some call to action. Um, in regards to specific food items, which ones are the worst in regards to inflation and which ones are maybe the most resilient or have maybe come down in price
3: like right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so right now uh, into September, because that's all we have right now uh, it's uh, bakery has been a problem. Uh, so bread is, is, uh, has increased by about 16, 17%. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: For anyone listening, I say, uh Oh, because there bread fixing has happened in Canada and, it was a it, it was a scandal that didn't reach the level in which I thought it should. But
3: Well, that, that, I, I think honestly, David, I think uh, the Bureau's unfinished business around some of these investigations are pushing people to find uh, a different scapegoat. And, and that happens to be that portal into the food industry, grocers. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and that's why grocers are being unfairly targeted. But but the investigation related to bread prices has been going on for seven years. It's still <laughs> ongoing. Seven years. In the <laughs> U.S., meat packers were pointed at by the President Biden. Within months, GBS wrote a $56 million check in compensation to consumers. Months. Yeah. Uh, to, to avoid a lawsuit. So, I mean, the tone is very different in the U.S., and like I said, Kroger is having a hard time at buying Albertsons because
2: yeah, and they're they're
3: on it. They're but when 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 Safeway was bought by Sobeys in 2013, nobody actually raised an eyebrow. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just just a, and and Sobeys is 24 percent of the market, Albertsons and Kroger is 15 percent combined. So yeah, it it's just a it. it that's why i think that the Conference bureau is partially responsible for what we're seeing right now and they it's conducting a study that will end in june 2023 that's a good thing cuz i think the study will help the bureau becoming much more forceful and toler- authoritative and we're already seeing it with the with the deal between uh, rogers and shaw right now
1: yeah yeah and we see it in yep. airlines and and there's yep. there's extra Uh, eyes on anything that could fall under the antitrust. uh, You can tell uh, that the
3: tone is starting to change already and I suspect it will impact food eventually.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, So we have about a minute here before we have to go to break. I'm going to ask for you to envision some world where Prime Prime Minister Charlebois is uh, in the House of Commons uh, and he's tasked with solving the issue of food inflation. What are some of the things you do in order
3: to uh, right the ship? I would nationalize the food distribution system in Canada. I'm just oh. kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. I was like, okay. <laughs> I thought, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna any... after saying it, I'm gonna pause and see. Is you it a reaction, hammer and but... sickle in your background there? Good, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But here, here's an idea though. Why not cr- create a crown corporation you know, a within the grocery industry, we already have one in banking. It's called Farm Credit Canada. I mean, okay, why not? Okay, okay, you know? okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you I feel, like you that, feel that, better, that, that is beyond me. I'd have to do but some I, I Obviously, reading, but... I, would, I believe in the private sector. I think the private yeah, sector is yeah. doing a wonderful job feeding Canadians at a decent price. And like I said, the food inflation rate in Canada compared to other places around the world is not that high.
1: Pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you again. All
3: right, take care. Bye-bye.